Welcome to episode 156 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. Do you remember the first time you were at the top of a Ferris wheel? I do, because it was just a couple of weeks ago. I'm nearly 45 years old and I can't recall another time I went on a Ferris wheel. I'd built up a narrative in my head when I was a kid that was so strong that I just never even considered it as an option as an adult. I don't know where all this started, but I have never been into what I call moving heights. Turns out it was a really lovely experience. My dad was there to wrangle our kids onto another ride, so I got a few minutes of quiet bliss with my wife as the park was closing down for the night around us. It probably helped that it wasn't the world's largest Ferris wheel. It was definitely a kid-friendly size. There I was, going around and around, feeling the breeze and enjoying the view, wondering what all the fuss had been about. Now I'm wondering whether I'd enjoy ziplining, although there is a part of my brain that is streaking in horror at the mere thought. Baby steps. Maybe I need to screw up the courage to try out a kid-friendly size zipline. Probably a good idea before signing up to zipline through a Costa Rican forest, which is sort of on my bucket list, if I'm being brave. Your challenge for this week, what is something you never thought you'd do, but maybe could try under the right conditions? Relax. I'm not going to make you do it, but you could if you wanted to, Right. Is there a part of you that's curious about what it would be like to no longer be a person who doesn't do that thing? Just think about it and let me know if you do take the leap. Now, onto this week's show. Today's guest has comedy, storytelling, and strategy in her DNA. When she was eight years old, her first oral presentation was about Harold Lloyd, Hollywood's premier comic stuntman and director of the silent film era. Even better, She admits that she mimed, and her comedy and storytelling nerd superpowers were visible from space. She is a keynote speaker, strategist, comedian, and author of several books, including Stop Boring Me, How to Create Kick-Ass Marketing Content, Products, and Ideas Through the Power of Improv. She's also the founder of Keeping It Human Incorporated. Believing we're all wired for creativity, she is passionate about helping teams, leaders, and brands tell human stories banish boring marketing, develop great culture, and unleash their creativity for big ideas and results. Please join me in welcoming Kathy Klotz, guest. Hey, Robbie. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Kathy, thanks so much for joining me from your office in San Jose, California. I understand you're you're in the 90-degree weather right now, so the window is open, got a nice breeze. You might hear a little of the birds chirping. Sounds awesome, actually. So I... As you know, this is a podcast about building strong networks. And the context of that conversation is leadership because uh, no one uh, achieves success on their own. They're always uh, not in isolation, but with actually with the with support of their community. So tell me, how do you define leadership and when did you realize you had the skills to lead? You know, it's interesting because... I have evolved my own thinking about what leadership is as I've gone on and done different things and... And I really think 
uh, the more mature version of me, experienced in the world version of me, really thinks that leadership is the ability to evolve your own thinking. Whether you have a team or you don't have a team, it's, it's got nothing to do with that. It's are you willing to evolve your own thinking? So I think there's a self-management aspect to it. Um, there's an emotional intelligence. And I think uh, leaders know themselves well. They know what brings out the best in them. They have the emotional intelligence to, to be aware of themselves and they have a high self-awareness. So I think that's, to me, that's where leadership starts. Mm, I really appreciate that the focus on on knowing yourself and being willing to learn about the things that you need to learn about. It's kind of it's true. If it's if you're sort of oblivious to yourself, how do you lead others? Like that's a really smart analysis. At what point in your life did that start to seep into how you thought about yourself in that role? Like when did you think, oh, I think I might I might actually have some of the, the ability to do this. You know, it's interesting because I was put in leadership roles very young in my corporate career, and I felt like I had the cognitive skills, but I got thrown in and was like, "I they don't teach you how to manage people. You're not taught that. And I had to learn that, you know, the, the best way to really lead anything or anybody is to really lead yourself. And I had to learn that's something that nobody really taught me. I think it was treading water. It was trying to manage teams and recognizing that unless I could be accessible emotionally and have high emotional intelligence, I I didn't call it that in my 20s, um, that nobody would follow. And like, you're not a leader if nobody would follow you. And I think I realized that um, it wasn't work that was going to get me there. It was seeking it out for myself. There was no training at work for it. I was going to have to do it by uh, reading books, talking to people, mentoring, and I was going to have to seek it out myself. Mm. So even even earlier, this is the beginning of your, your career, but like back in the day, high school, grade school, even on the playground, you know, were you the outspoken kid who like organized everyone? Uh, who was like, you know, selling things on the side and, uh, you know, getting getting kids all riled up or, or you, you, yeah, you're nodding. I, I didn't think you were the quiet <laughs> wallflower. No, I was, I was the talker in school. I was the, you know, I was the, a little bit of the class clown and I'll never forget. It's so funny that you say that, Robbie, because you just triggered a memory. Like I'll never forget as a kid, like I was always talking in class. Um, I loved everybody. I loved making new friends. I was very outgoing. And um, I remember um, the teacher saying, you know, your your daughter has a, a discipline problem. And of course, I was probably like seven or eight at the time. And my mom's like, that's not a discipline problem. She has leadership skills. She has leadership skills. <laughs> and I remember her arguing with the nun because I went to a Catholic school. It's called leadership. <laughs> wow. So somebody, your mom saw that in you and the nuns were like trying to get you to conform. <laughs> it was easier to deal with children who conform. Exactly. So I'm really grateful that I think my mom, my mom was an early advocate. I think she saw something in me and I'm, I'm always grateful for that. Yeah. Yeah. And when you were headed off to school, did did you uh, ever take any unofficial, you know, running for office or, you know, captain of a team, anything like that? Or was it always sort of like leading from sort of the side? You know, a little bit of both. I think when I was younger, it was sort of leading from the side and then, um, I was, I, I went to a debate class, I think in junior high and my friend um, had joined the debate team and I just went, cause she went 
And then all of a sudden they were debating and, and, and I was like, you know, there's some flawed logic here. Here's, here's what the argument should be. And the t- teacher was like, all right, that's it. You're on the debate team. And I sort of got recruited to the debate team. And then I did it in high school and college. It kind of stuck. And it was, it's, it's interesting. It, it, so I, I, I sort of a little bit of both, but I, I found myself in these situations where it just seemed natural. It just seemed to fit. Well, at the debate team, such an opportunity to, to try things out. I actually remember, I, you're making me think of a great memory, which is I was trying to learn how to be a better speaker while in high school. I remember trying to find a class for that. My mother had taught me that I should speak like Johnny Carson because everybody understood the way Johnny Carson spoke English. <laughs> so I... I could there I couldn't find a class like that, you know, and and I think a debate team would have been an, another good opportunity for me, but we didn't have one. Um, so how cool though, because obviously it brought out a lot of your natural talents and it gave you a place to channel them. It did, and I think one of the things that I loved and it showed showed an early affinity for was just humor and comedy, and I can make people laugh. Um, and I'd be debating them and I'd make them laugh and lose their place. And I think that that was something that, um, <laughs> and it was like, a, like comic relief. All right. Brief. Um, and it was funny because at one point I was like, should I be here? And I realized that that was, that was a huge asset in, in networking, in, in convincing people and persuasion and influence. And I didn't have a vocabulary for it, you know, in junior high or high school. But I would later realize that those kinds of tools really do matter and they make a difference. Absolutely. You know, there's been a lot of talk in the speaker circles that we're in about how um, not just improv, but stand-up comedy in particular is such a useful craft for a speaker. Uh, improv, I, I've always thought is a great skill to have because you do field questions. And I, I feel like I'm, I'm doing improv when I do q and I'm always like, what's going to get thrown at me? Let's just go with it. Yes, end. Yes, end. You know? But then when it comes to stand-up, I, you know, what are your thoughts on how that relates to the speaking world? Because I feel like if you're not of the speaking world, these two things don't seem like they're related. But as I've learned more, I can see the connection. Yeah. Well, stand-up's definitely related. And you use improv in stand-up. So, uh, you know, we have a thing in stand-up called crowd work and crowd work is where we go off script off of our set list. And we just talk to the audience. How are you doing tonight? Oh, hey, are you guys on a date? Is it a first date? Oh my God. Have you, have you made out yet? You know, I mean, it's like where you just drop what you're doing and there's something beautiful about being in that, in that present moment. And so it relates in a lot of ways. I think part of what comedians do is we're telling you a story. We are letting you in on who we are. And by virtue of the stories that I tell you, you're like, I get who that is. I know exactly her point of view. And I think the same is really true of speaking is that a great speaker has a point of view and tells stories that have this huge emotional component. And I think business storytelling is exactly like stand-up comedy because the central tenet of each is the truth. It's just that one slightly on steroids. (laughs) Comedy just takes it to a whole other level. Um, uh, But I I think they come from the same, I think, storytelling and and truthful place. Yeah, yeah. This seems like such a gift to to take the time to learn that craft. So what what was your trajectory? I mean, you're in this great place now and, you know, we we can get into like the the current accolades. But when you got started, you weren't thinking, I'm writing books and I'm going to like lead team, like how did, where did you think you were going to go when you 
like were leaving school and like starting a career and, and wow. how does it relate to where you ended up? Completely 180. So the interesting, <laughs> <laughs> the interesting so at one point I thought, I'm gonna go to law school and I'm gonna be a lawyer. And I remember going, oh, I don't think I could do that. And and um, but I knew at one point I wanted to like run a business. So I, I entered rather than go to law school, got an MBA and 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 went to corporate and, and I thought under the totally misguided, naive impression that I was gonna be able to bring a lot more of the humor elements into work. And yes or no, I kind of got, you know, forgiveness versus permission, but I, I still encountered a lot of like barriers to it and, and fear, sadly. Um, and I realized at some point, it, the pieces started to fill in because I was doing comedy five, six nights a week. I was doing stand up, I was doing improv, and I was bringing some of it into the workplace, but not all of it. And I had been in, in the workplace probably 10 years, you know, living in Silicon Valley, working for a tech company, you know, eventually running marketing. And I was like, oh, this sucks. I'm living in these fragmented worlds and I really need to take this over here and use, do more with it. And I realized at some point, the only way I was going to be able to make it work is to just leave corporate America and really figure out a way to take these two, like, things and like fuse them. And I didn't know how it was going to work. And sometimes, some days I, I, you know, I, I, I say to my friends, I'm still figuring it out, but I've, <laughs> and I've evolved. And I, I think that it, it is completely 180 from where I, I thought I would be. And yet that's the beautiful surprise of it is I constantly find new ways to kind of take the comedy skills and say, you know what, it applies to business and it applies in the, all these different areas. Yeah, I can see that, particularly when you're talking about like things like change management. I, I've had people come in and do a training on change man management. And if you're not the one who's about to experience change, you can sit back and appreciate how funny it is <laughs> um, and, and how predictable like all the stages are and even what we call the stages. And, and, and you know, I, too, infuse humor into my talk. So I talk about networking. And I think people expect me to be so dry and so boring and my talk is two hours long. Like I can do less and I'd be very happy to do more. <laughs> but I have like hours and hours of content in my head. And I just, I just have this like bulleted list. It's my handout that everyone gets. And I just kind of go every now and again, where are we again? Oh, yeah, yeah. And I start telling stories. Um, and people at first are like, look at the schedule and they're like, oh my gosh, two hours. And it's the afternoon, you know. But I, you, you know, humor in that moment is what gets you through and gets people to wake up and absorb and pay attention and engage. How, have you, how are you seeing humor being an amazing tool in your toolbox for imparting, like you've got a great message about being human. <laughs> I think it's like an important thing we should be remembering. You know, it's interesting because I think humor comes in a lot of levels. Uh, you know, I think, you know, um, if, if you're if you're a fan of like John Oliver or The Daily Show or any of these types of shows, you'll you'll totally relate because I think what a lot of these shows do is they take a really important human truth and they wrap it around and de the delivery vehicle is chocolate humor. <laughs> it's like it's like I'm going to take a hard truth and for us to really as humans look at it and be able to unpack it and make it less scary to really look at that truth head on, we wrap it in humor. And I think that's where I think humor is really elevated to this whole other, I get nerdy about it, this whole other place of really advancing ideas, because I think humor helps us as, as human beings see our own flaws, connect on those own flaws, and do better. And it, it, it allows us to discuss topics that we might not always want to talk about. And that I think is really probably the, the, 
the height of, to me, when we're using humor, what I think humor really is capable. I mean, sure, it's great for like, you know, you know, taking the edge off and and any kind of training that you're doing. And I think there's sort of, I look at it as like a hierarchy. There's like stages of humor. And then I think at the, the highest calling is like to really elevate that human message. And I think that's really, to me, that's like, like, oh, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's amazing because I, I hadn't really ever thought about humor being used in that potential. And yet I am a fan of John Oliver's style. And he, you know, can talk about like, you know, slaughterhouses and, <laughs> and worker conditions. And I will sit and pay attention for the entire time because I'm, I'm so pulled in with his dry humor. Um, and, and yes, you're right. Like, otherwise, it'd be really hard to sit and face that. Um, what a, what a great observation! I think we could all think about now about how to wrap the hard truth with some delicious chocolate and <laughs> give people something to like hold on to. Um, yeah. So so when you uh, when you started to develop this this new sort of I don't know was it a side hustle at first? Did you really just leave? Like what was that shift? Did you, was it like planned out? Did you have a, did you know what you were going to do? it was become like a part-time spouse. It was really, you know, cause it was, I was doing, yeah, it really, really was. I mean, I was spending most of my evenings um, doing comedy. And um, so it, it ended up being like the two worlds are going to bleed. They're going to, they're going to blend. And so comedy concepts, I couldn't help but make associations. The other thing about comedy and improv is that it'll train your brain to look for things to relate so, you know, um, if I, if you took two random things in your office right now and you said, all right, how is this pen? Um, like, you know, your, your iPhone and could you make a product that combined the two and could you, you know, could you have, I don't know, some kind of mashup between the two and then your brain's always going like that. And so it, yes, it started to, um, as this kind of side thing and more and more, I, I was bringing these concepts in and, at some point, I knew that if I really wanted to, like I say, pursue it in a way that was really super meaningful, I'd have to kind of um, deal with it. But I, I kind of like to think of it as it's less about a, you know, it, it was sort of a side hustle, but I really fundamentally think it was who I am. And I'm not sure that I could, I, I can say this now, I'm not sure I was 100% who I was meant to be when I was in corporate, because I don't think that I could bring all of who I was. And I felt 100% me when I was doing comedy. So I knew something, somewhere they had to blend, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. and did you uh, leave and start launching a product, uh, like speaking? Like, what was those first few days as you were like, okay, I'm going to figure this out. I don't know what it is yet. So the first, so the impetus for me leaving was I had a baby. Ah, good, <laughs> a good reason. We're like, is there, I, I'm not sleeping. Somebody punched me. What happened? What happened? Just, <laughs> um, but what would it, what was interesting though, is that I had been prior to that, I'd been thinking and it took me a while to figure this out, Robbie is because I'd been thinking about it from a humor perspective. And the shift really happened for me is when I realized that if I say, Hey, let's talk about humor. If you're in corporate America, you're like, Oh boy. Okay. No, no, no. Right. Cause like nobody calls me and says, Hey, Kathy, could you come over? My humor's broken. You know, <laughs> it's like, nobody calls me for that. I wish. And then I realized, so the first couple of things I started to do is do trainings on humor and it really never took off the way that I wanted. And I had to realize that you have to cast it in people's language and the language that doesn't scare them. 
you know, you, you go to the mountain and we get the epiphany that, you know, from the humor gods, Kathy, you were meant to do this with your life. And then you come down from the mountain and you're like, Hey, we got this humor thing. And everyone's like, you know, looking at you because they didn't go to the mountaintop. They didn't get the message. You got, you, you have to remember that the villagers down below, they weren't up there at the mountaintop with you. So they don't see what you see. And it took me a while to kind of course correct and realize that what people wanted were relationships. What they wanted was meaning. What they wanted was creativity. And I could do that. And the vehicle was humor. Humor wasn't the output. It wasn't the outcome. It was the, it was to get to those things. So the minute I started to kind of play with that messaging, it kind of started to click. And I think it was, I, I think I was in the right place at the right time, because I think in the years that I've been doing this work, I think there's also more receptivity to improv in the workplace. So I, it just seems like sort of all the, the perfect storm of everything kind of coalesced, you know? Yeah. I want to, I want to sort of highlight a couple of things you just said. Cause I think we all learn from that process because we, uh, we come up with an answer to people's problems that they don't even know they have. <laughs> like, you're like, my diagnosis is that you've lost your funny bone. And they're like, what? <laughs> and, and then they're like, I can't, I, they're like, I, I don't need your help. I don't even know what you're talking about. So they, but they know they have a problem. So what problem do they know they have? They know that they want, like deeper connections, more creativity, meaning at work. They want maybe retention, you know, as a driver on a, it's like a metric scale. And so you have to cast all this with their language. And this is true for any business. We always have to understand the value proposition from the perspective of the person buying, not from our perspective, because we we're almost going to stop once like, so my, my ideal clients are entrepreneurial women in their fifties and sixties and their presenting problem is that they want to are thinking about hosting a podcast or launching a book. And that's the thing that they know they have a problem with. They want help with this particular project. But what I know is that that is an indication of them wanting more and based on where they are in life and their ability to like make a big shift in transition, they want it to happen quickly they need a lot of support. They can't even think that far ahead, right? So I can't come at them and say, listen, I can help you with your podcast, but what you really need is this like, you know, 24 <laughs> month plan with, you know, blah, 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 I don't know. Like they would just be like, what? Nope, no thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Run. Run away. It would be scary. So I, I can see, like, I just want to name that because I think we all make this mistake of like going, you know, into our study, into our office, into our basement, crafting the best possible business plan. <laughs> and then we like jump out into the marketplace, like I have it. And that is selling as opposed to attracting. And that makes people like not want to hang out with you. So don't, don't do that. <laughs> don't, do it, don't do it. And it's so true. And it's so easy to get caught up in that because we all like get a vision and we get inspired by something that's meaningful to us. And you know, I think, you know, and, and of course that doesn't go over well and say, Hey, you know what you really need? You need to lighten up. You're not funny. <laughs> sure. Where do I sign up? Not. And, and I, and I think it's, you know, not that I was ever that, that direct, but I, but I think people have a fear and, and humor is something so personal that people are scared. Am I funny enough? I think what I discovered too, is human nature is it's not, am I funny? Um, is it, it's, will I fail? Will I fail if I try? There's a fear. 
And nobody cares about being funny. It's what funny opens the door to. Will it connect me more? Will people listen to me more? And so when you, I, I started to have to really, and I know better because I came out of marketing, but you're blind to your own stuff. And so what, the minute I sort of course corrected a little bit and started to kind of think what they really, really wanted, it was it was much easier. And And I think improv now has a big fan base in corporate America. And it's just because I think we started learning how to kind of talk about it too and not scare the pants off of everybody about it. I think one of the things that's interesting about your topic and mine is that if we aren't careful, we end up coming at people in a deficit way, meaning like you're in this place and need to be in this better place. Let me help you get there. Like, um, and nobody wants to sign up for that. Like it's it in their mind, that is not motivating. <laughs> that is demotivating. Um, everybody wants to think they're good and they want to get better as opposed to, I suck at this. Let me be not so bad. <laughs> like that's not a, that's not good marketing. Um, and so I, it's interesting, like, as you're talking about it, it's like, you have to find a way to communicate to other people that you're going to be supporting them and that fail failure in this case is not trying like that's, that's really it. So what was the biggest challenge though for you as you made this shift? Like, what's the thing that you were like, I can't just do this alone. I definitely need some, someone or something to get me through this next piece. What was the part that you knew clearly is not yours? Like, you know what your, I guess, zone of genius is and all of this. What was like, oh, wow, I'm now doing this myself. This part can't be mine. It's not. I think it re- was really the moments where I would struggle because I, in, in solo going, oh my gosh, you know, and of course you talk to other people who do similar work, but everybody has the same blind spots. So I think for me, it was, it was seeking community of people who were really good at sales and really good. I, and as, as somebody who came from marketing, product and creativity, I knew that world, but sales, I, I really had to learn really what selling really is and the art and the conversation of selling. Because to your point, you said it so well, you know, too much marketing is like, hey, you know, five ways that that you are doing a crappy job and can do better and buy my product. And it's, you know, nobody wants us. So how do we tell a story of, of hope and how do we lift people up? And I always had that storytelling, but I needed sort of I think for me, it was really seeking out those people who were good at selling and networking with those people and appreciating their zone of genius because it wasn't mine and learning how to get out of my own way and, and see how what I did crafted in their language could elevate what they did. And that was a big like, aha, getting out of my own way. Mm. You know? and, and how did you find these people? Like... And, and not like find them, but I guess get yeah. on their stage so that they took your phone call kind of thing. Yeah. You know, um, I, it was a lot of networking. It was a lot of networking. And I remember talking to somebody that I had known who had left corporate and was a sales exec, started his own company. And he was really good at sales. And I remember sitting down with him for lunch when we worked at, you know, a, a company together, like I say, and I said, and I just, I don't know, I'm not sure what it is. And he goes, you know what it is? You're talking through your lens. And this aha moment over, over lunch made me realize all my contacts were so similar to me. 
I had tunnel vision. And this is where networking, I was networking very narrowly. And I realized that I hadn't been exposing myself to salespeople, to business dev people, to people who could help me poke holes and elevate the message and to see things that I didn't see. And I realized, oh my God, he's right. And it was a big aha moment for me to just get out there and have more conversations, throw stuff out there. Don't be afraid to throw an idea out there and let people poke holes in it. And that's okay because they're going to help you make it better. The right people will help you make it better. So I started to make a conscious effort of really going to my people I knew and sometimes my friends and people I only knew just a little bit and say, can you help me? And there's something about being able to ask for help that is so powerful. People want to help. I think we're afraid to ask. And I had to get over that hurdle. Yeah. I mean, the vulnerability in asking for help is why others want to help you. <laughs> you know, because you're showing your humanity in that moment. And, and it also, and there have been studies on this, people feel good when they help you. Uh, if unless you know they don't feel good if they've been like forced into doing it, then it's not like of their own free will. But otherwise, people get their own endorphin rush. This is true for like donating to a cause or doing a favor or being helpful or making an introduction. People feel really good about that. Um, my background is on fundraise is in fundraising. I ran twenty five events a year for a decade that raised a million dollars a year, and um, I my, one of my first speaking. Uh, things was actually around fundraising. Like someone knew that I'd been speaking about networking and then I did fundraising for my day job and they said, will you come to DC and train my board of directors on fundraising? And I went, uh, yes, because <laughs> that's what you do when opportunities come your way. And it's a lot about shifting that mindset, you know? And, and so here's a quick little thing that I've done. So folks, if you're listening, you're like, I still hate asking for help. If you had to ask for money, you know, people hate doing that. They always tell me like, oh, I think it's the worst. But if you had the opportunity to support your your friend who was like, you know, running the marathon for a charity, if you if you had knew someone was selling girls cookies for their kids' troop, if you like had the ability to like donate to a breast cancer walk or something like that, well, you'd feel really good about it. And so by not asking, you're denying your friend's happiness. Right. And that's same thing with asking for help. So, okay. So you started asking for help. I th- I love this because I think it's such a crucial piece of it. Where were you finding these people though? Like, how did you even know you, you just rattled off biz dev, uh, sales, like all these sort of yeah. entrepreneur types where, how did you start to connect with them? So I got, I started going to uh, different kind of association events and meetings and women in consulting and all these different groups in my area and meeting different women and men that had different backgrounds. And I would strike, strike up a conversation and we'd hit it off and, you know, and I, I, you know, we'd help each other and we agreed to kind of give each other kind of a, like a, a little bit of a, a, a brain boost and a buddy system and kind of a little unofficial mastermind kind of thing. And then it, it's interesting. Talk about when you ask for help and, and the big lesson for me, hey, do you know anybody? Do you know anybody? And little by little, my friends were like, you know, I'm not the right person, but I know somebody who is. Let me introduce you to my friend because my friend can totally help you with this. And, you know, little by little, I started making connections and be, and was really intentional about it. And offering something of value to help them and having these conversations just really opened up my eyes to the way I should be messaging. 
and um, ask for help. And if it takes a couple of layers to get connected, don't be, don't be afraid or fear that it's not going to happen. It will. It might take a couple of like degrees of separation, but you'll get to those people if you're intentional about it. And that's really kind of, I wish I could say that I, I had a, the best strategic plan. I didn't. I, I started with an intent and asked around. Yeah. About how long do you think before you started to see some, some results from doing this? Uh, it took a, about a good year and a half of, yeah. you know, talking to people. I get one thing. I get like climbing one of those climbing walls. I get uh, my footing on one thing and then another piece would come into place. And then that would lead to another referral. And then it just all of a sudden, I think with enough momentum about a year and a half into it, um, that I hit, I hit a stride. And I was having a lot of conversations. So it was funny. I was getting referrals from people um, that that I didn't know well. And yeah, so-and-so said that they were talking to you and helped you out with something. Oh, and by the way, they said to talk to you about some of the improv stuff you're doing. And little by little, that was just word of mouth. And it was amazing. Yeah. And I'm so glad that you shared the, the length of time because I think people either think it will take 10 years and it clearly doesn't, or they want to be like, you know, two weeks. <laughs> that also isn't the truth, but you do have to stick to it. I mean, you have to keep at it on a regular basis. Um, and how long ago was that shift for you? Well, I left uh, in corporate America in, in 2008, end of 2008. So I'd say by about 2010, 2011, I felt yeah. like I was hitting, I was hitting a good stride. Yeah. And then I've gone through different trajectory points since then where like, you know what, the focus, you, you need to kind of um, widen it. Well, maybe you'd start in an area and then a client would say, hey, could you do this other thing for us? Yeah, I think I can do that. Yes, and I think I can, you know, you say yes, and. And it's just started to evolve from there. Um, but you just have to get that first footing. And, and you're right, be realistic about it may not happen in a month. I wish it would happen in a month for everybody, but it might not be that. Yeah. yeah. So how do you nurture and stay connected to this like ever expanding network? I mean, you've got your closest circle of friends, but then there's a, like, I always think it was like a second and third layers out, the people that you see annually at a conference or you worked with five years ago, or just the fun colleagues that you don't have a reason to work with right now. Like, how do you nurture and sustain those kinds of connections? I have tried really hard to just be intentional about um, every day saying hi to a bunch of people in my network. Hey, how's it going? How's it going? And, you know, the best time, of course, as we know, is when you don't want something and just really be intentional about saying, hey, how's it going? Um, And really making it um, kind of a meaningful conversation. If it's I heard somebody got a new house or had a baby or got married or some there's some life event that like I, I can say, hey, you know, I saw that. That's pretty cool. Tell me, how are things going? Or I just saw you started a business. Or, oh my God, your kid just, your firstborn just went off to college. Oh, my God. Um, stuff like that. And I think that has helped. I've also challenged myself. This is an interesting one. I did, the, I have a lot of networks and I realized there was very little crossover. And that was a problem for me. And I realized I had a business network and I had a comedy network little bit of overlap, but not a lot. And I realized that the most diverse network that I belonged to was my comedy network. So one of the things I, I really forced myself to do is to try to reach out to, to more people and diversify my business network. Um, and it sounds, it sounds like it's, it, it's a lot of work and it, it's really just thinking through, um, are my networks 
overlapping? Are they not overlapping? Should I, do they have diversity? Um, do they not have diversity? What can I do to reach out to more people and nurture those better? Um, I probably could be, even today, I, I, as, as far as I've come, I feel like, could I do better? Yeah. Yeah. So how do you think about diversity within your network? Like what to you, are you defining that as, or, or what, how would you know that you've done it when you've done it? Um, I'll know it when I'm getting referrals from different networks and not the same networks. There's nothing wrong with getting referrals from the same networks. But if, if you're not top of mind in a network, you're probably not getting work from that network. It also tells you, you might not be giving enough to that network. And so a network can't just be an in and out burger. <laughs> it's gotta be, you know, t- so the networks where I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm seeing more referrals. I'm top of mind. I'm active. Um, there are networks that, you know, when I'm not seeing it, I, I think, okay, what should I be doing better to be a better giver, to be more visible? I also look at diversity, not just in terms of, um, am I in the consideration set, but, um, uh, gender diversity, you know, racial diversity. Um, is it, you know, is it a monolith in terms of like the types of people in that group? And I've been intentionally making sure most recently that I'm seeking out different places. I can also be of more help to more people when it's not everybody the same. If I'm, if I'm just in my comedy network, we're all comedians. We're all, we all have an improv background. That is of no help if that's all I do. So I've got to, you know, I've got to intentionally hit all these buckets that have very little overlap. And that's, that's the challenge. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, finding ways to bring folks together. Do you ever like host or convene or gather people, salons, dinners, anything like that? I have not, but that's an excellent idea. I have not done that. That would be, now that would be fun. I'd love to bring some business people and some comedians and everybody would get offended and it would be fun. (laughs) Yeah, I think it would be great, particularly given uh, that you're looking to kind of increase the receptivity of the business world, like introducing them in a, in a sort of more intimate setting, um, engaged in a conversation, you'd probably learn a lot from them about what they did like or didn't like, but it would probably, I mean, you know, you know, there'd be great conversation, like <laughs> given, oh, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. um, no, and that like, you could do that even where you live or if you're heading to a conference, like who can you bring in? Like, let's say you're going to a business conference. I'm sure you could find um, folks from your comedy world in the area to come and join you for a dinner. Like that kind of, that would be like really fun. I think that'd be, a, I think that's an excellent idea, you know, I, 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 and it does matter. It absolutely matters because depending on the conference, you, it's very easy to stick to the people you know. And I notice that sometimes the speaker dinners, you're all hanging out with the speakers and there's nothing wrong with that. It's important to nurture those speaker networks. But I also find sometimes that we're, maybe we're missing the chance to talk to more of the attendees and to mix it, to mix up just our little, our little cocoons that we get so comfortable in. Mm-hmm. And um, so I try to make it a point when, when I go to different conferences and people go, Hey, People I don't know well are like, hey, are you free for dinner? I say yes, because I figured that's an opportunity to meet some new people and like have a drink 
and meet them in an environment that I never would do. And I think that's just a powerful thing to do, you know? Absolutely. So I'm guessing that you're on the more extroverted side of the scale as far as where you get your energy. I'm pretty ambiverted, which is really completely, I know. So I'm the kind of person that's like, I love talking to people. I love, love, love it. And then there's that end of the day where you're like, I've been talking all day long and I'm done. It's 10 o'clock and, you know, <laughs> now get all out of my face, everybody. I'm going to my room. But yeah, <laughs> you know, I, I do really love, I love that. And I love to talk to different types of people. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I think there's there's a natural sort of curiosity and uh, like a, you're very into like learning. I think that's where your that openness to engage with people. I think it's such an asset that I I think when we're thinking of what to cultivate in others around us, it's like that that's what we're hoping for because that leads to them wanting to have the aha moment and the diversity of the networks and like even the fact that you're aware of sort of who's in the network and who's not in your network and all of that. Um, so th- this is really interesting. Like, do you have any particular sort of like habits like that you uh like you sort of talked about like wanting to reach out to people on a regular basis to say hello but is there anything that's structured or is it really um as you think of them like you know if you were to pass on like a here's here's a thing that that i do or is it more of a philosophy that you want to share um, it's a philosophy and a really good friend that you probably know as well um, from one of our, our speaker groups suggested being a lot more systematic. So, and, and he's right. And, and so um, I would say that networking is so important. You want to have the structured networking, but you want to allow for the organic stuff. I know people that are so structured that like, you know, when somebody calls to just shoot the bull for five minutes, they're like, I'm sorry, I don't have time. And I think we have to al- allow for these serendipitous kind of like, yeah, you know, conference meetings or whatever. So I have my structured stuff that I do every every week. I reach out to different people in my network just to see how they are. And then I allow myself those times of exploration. So, you know, uh, at Inbound, um, I was supposed to talk to a mutual friend of ours and I couldn't find her. She was calling me, where are you? Where are you? I can't find you. Because, and there was a mass of people. But all along the way, Robbie, what was hilarious is that people were stopping me. Hey, I loved your talk. Hey, can we, hey, I loved your talk. And I took every opportunity to say, you know, hey, thanks so much for coming. What did you get out of it? What could I do differently? And just to learn and to say hello to every person along the way, because they were in my path serendipitously. To me, that's such a curiosity and such a, that's such an important exercise. I don't think we allow ourselves enough time. We're like, no, I got to get somewhere. I got to be in a meeting. And so I think you need the structured and you need the unstructured, the play, just the playful stuff too. Mm. I often uh, have said that you're more likely to have serendipity when you know what you're looking for. So oh, yeah. you knew that, uh, yeah. that you know, you'd like to hear back from the people that you've just served, you just spoke in front of. And so you were like open to that, like you were looking for that and that therefore will come across your path. Because if you're not looking for that, those same people might've been there and you would have been like, I'm on a mission. <laughs> I don't have time. I'm true. going to do this thing. Oh, true. You know, that's a, and that's a really important point. And I think if you're, depending on the frame of mind that you have, if you are open to it and you can't afford the time and you, you have a little bit of wiggle room, I think that can be, I've had some of the most fascinating conversations that way. Mm-hmm. And I think that I don't discount that as being part of the value of the networking that I get. Like for example, at a conference, um, the unplanned stuff. Cause some of the best stuff that I've ever had, the best networking I've ever had at conferences, 
if we're just talking conferences, has been the unstructured serendipitous ran into somebody at a bar. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And those become really important. Yeah. I call those small networking moments at conferences. You know, it's like the stuff you can't really plan for. And I think one of the best moments is when you're about to, you know, you walk into a breakout session and you look, particularly if you get there early, because you're like, ah, I don't I want to duck out of the vibrant chaotic hallway. There's other people all in the room and everyone's on their phone. And like, that's the, those are your people. Like they chose the same session. They came in a little early, like just interrupting that silence. And I think that speakers can play a big role in that. Um, the organizers about how they like, you know, the prompts they give their volunteers as people walk in, um, you know, having something written on the, on the board, you know, like the here with colleagues, go mingle here alone. Don't stay that way. Like if that were the ethos, then there would just be a very different, you know, mindset around, oh, right, right. I'm here to actually connect with people. <laughs> I think sometimes we forget that. And it's clear that you're not forgetting that and you're taking advantage of those moments. And now I want to check in with you and hear about these dinners you're going to host. And I hope I get to come to one because. Yeah. So what a fabulous fun. idea. What a great yeah. idea. So um, this is one of my favorite questions and we're kind of coming to the end here. So I'm, I know that we're going to stay in touch and cross paths a lot of different ways yeah. online in person. But let's say we're connecting a year from now and we're just talking about all of your successes for the previous year. I want to know, what are we going to be celebrating? What are you looking forward to in the year ahead? I want to do a TED talk. So I've already applied to do a TEDx talk. We'll see. I don't have any news yet, so I can't. But I'd love, I'd love to be able to do, that, to do some stretch goals, write my next book. Um, which is already in play right now. Um, and uh, uh, I, I don't know, I'd love to, I'd love to um, even cross the chasm into less corporate work and a lot more consumer kind of like, I'd love to write a book that's really aimed at, you know, the consumer, you know? Yeah. Just everyday person, you know? Yeah. yeah something we can all relate to and pick up. and. Yes. Yes, because what we do isn't just, it doesn't stop at the corporate wall. There's no magical barrier. And, I, and, I, and I've been thinking about that idea a lot in the last like two years. And it's something I think that's the next step for me. That's awesome. So Kathy, how can people find you and follow your work? So you can find me. I'm all over the socials. Um, you can go to keepingithuman.com. You can also find me on LinkedIn, uh, all the places at Kathy Cloak's guest on Twitter. So whatever floats your boat, however you want to find me, reach out. I, I love to hear from new people. So yeah. Awesome. Kathy, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Robbie. Thanks so much for having me. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Kathy. Such a pleasure to speak with her and learn about her leadership journey. What is your key takeaway from our conversation? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 156. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources from today's show, as well as over 150 archived episodes on this Pinterest-inspired page. Reach out today and let me know which were your favorites. Have you been thinking about working with me? I'm accepting one or two more one-on-one -on -one coaching clients. If you want to leverage your expertise to build a business as a speaker, coach, podcast host, and or author, I'd love to help you discover relationship-based business strategies personalized for your situation and your vision of success. Does that sound intriguing? Send me an email to schedule a chat to see if I'm the right fit for your business needs. My email is Robbie 
at robbysamuels.com. That's R-O-B-B-I-E-S-A-M-U-E-L-S. If you enjoyed this episode with Kathy, please share it with your friends and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's show. Remember, subscribing is always free. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review on Apple Podcasts. It's easy to find our page at itunes.ontheschmooze.com. Thank you in advance. And I look forward to connecting again next week. I'll be interviewing another talent professional about their untold stories of leadership and networking. We'll explore their career challenges, work-life balance, and how they built a strong professional network on the way to becoming a successful leader. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.